0: Uh, I rarely have many sermon notes, uh, if I do have any it's usually a list of scriptures with a three or four scribbled notes there to remind me of a key thought I don't want to forget and I'm the only one that can read them. Uh, today however I have 12 pages full and you know how I am with a little list of scriptures so we'll see where this goes. I want to address an issue that was tied closely with last week's sermon. Uh, as you may recall, we went through quite a few scriptures indicating how destruction on this nation is going to come. And we saw suddenly, uh, in an instant, in a moment, uh, in a day, an hour, in a month, where the terminologies or the words that God used to show How the Destruction of Israel, also known as in Prophecy, Babylon. And I'll remind you, we went through a series of I don't know how many sermons showing that the United States is the only nation that fits the description of Babylon today in the Bible in any form, shape, or fashion. It has to be. (coughs) And we went through a multitude of scriptures to show that. So, our destruction is going to come very, very quickly. Now, let me give you a little brief history of the church view and the world view. Decades ago, Herbert Armstrong, in the midst of World War II, began to see Germany as the bugaboo and that a ten-nation... Alliance would come together, which they would call the United States of Europe. There was a great deal of uh, talk about that among people who were trying to form, had formed the League of Nations and later would the United Nations. And certainly in the 20th century, our major wars were fought with Germany as the leader of those wars. Now, uh, they had some alliances with Italy, big deal. Uh, ultimately Japan, a little bigger deal, but still uh, the main force or thrust of World War I and World War II was Assyria or Germany. So he began to teach, based on some things he had seen in the Bible and his view of what was going around him, that Germany would lead World War III and would take our nation into captivity. And that has been published for decades in the church, and most in the church still uh, believe in that in one form or another. And the ten-nation Europe that was foreseen by Mr. Armstrong has now turned into 20-some-odd members and may even grow larger. So, is that it? Or is it something else? Now, apart from what the church was teaching, it became quite popular during the 50s, 60s to not worry about Germany anymore because the German empire, the German nation, if you will, had been utterly destroyed, its cities bombed into oblivion or obliteration, so no one considered Germany would ever become a threat again. And, in fact, many articles stated such things as that Germany will never rise again. So then Russia became the big deal. They had nuclear weapons, and we had the Cold War. When we had a, I'm not really a Mexican standoff, but it describes it, between the United States and Russia, and people started building bunkers and fearing that the world would come to an end in a nuclear holocaust that Russia would pour out on America. That was quite popular. And then Russia started coming apart, I do believe partially by design. And now we have a new concern, and it's all over the Internet. It's all over talk radio. It's becoming... A thing on the lips of many Americans, and that's the colossus of the East, China. So now everyone is speculating that not Germany, certainly, not Russia, now certainly, but China will be the one who destroys us because, after all, we owe them a lot of money and uh, they want to come get what's now theirs. So the buzzword now is that China is on its way and will be here shortly to destroy us. Now, does this have any basis in fact, any merit? Now, I don't care what anybody on this earth might say. I only care what God's Word says. That's all that matters to me, because I know that He will tell me the truth, and that Whatever comes down is going to have been foretold in the Bible because God does nothing except He warns by His servants, the prophets. Uh, another big bugaboo on the scene is the Islamic religion. And a lot of people are fearing it and think that it is going to be the leadership of the, new, the coming new world order. Uh, is that a fact? Is that the case? Is there any chance of that? Or is it like Russia was and like China seems to be on the world scene today? Where does this all fit in? What does God have to say about it? I think these are questions we need to address. We know our demise will come very quickly. And it would be nice to know, at least from our standpoint, Scripture itself says, and I may have written that one down that it will be a people that we know not. or won't know where, or from whence it comes, I think, is the way it puts it. It's going to come so suddenly, so quickly, and from an unexpected quarter, that we will not even know where it came from. That's... I, I don't have that Scripture in mind at the moment. I think I have it in my notes. Now, I want to give you an overview, first of all. We need to understand the basis of the Bible, how it was written and why it was written, and who it is about. Now, that's the first step in beginning to decipher what the real story is. I went through the table of nations and did a lot of number crunching over the last two or three days. And that's why I have so many notes, because there are so many peoples listed. And I wanted to get a feel for each of those Peoples that are listed in the table of nations, which ones become prominent in the Bible and which ones are fairly referenced. In other words, if the story is in the Bible, and it certainly has to be, then where is the emphasis put? Let's look first of all to get an overview <clears throat> at the three sons of Noah, which became the three major divisions of the population of the earth. First of all, we have Japheth, and Japheth is is defined pretty clearly as the nations of the Far East or Asia, and it's unclear exactly where the cutoff is between Semites and uh, uh, the Japhetic peoples in Eastern Europe, Western Asia. But Japheth is mentioned 98 times in the Bible. The people of Ham, well, let's let's don't go there yet. Let's, Let's go ahead and explore Japheth just a little bit. Tarshish is the most commonly mentioned son of Japheth. And it is mentioned 24 times. Generally, in the terminology of the ships of Tarshish uh, as a great trading nation. There is nothing mentioned about them being warlike, but they're depicted primarily as trading peoples. Gog is mentioned 11 times. uh, Magog, I think, uh, where did I put it? It's, uh, It's in another list later on when it describes what they do. Tubal eight times, Javan, or probably Japan, seven times, Gomer six times, and Ashkenaz once or twice. Ashkenaz, take note, is of Japheth, not of Shem. Now, there's no record of much intermarriage between Japheth And Shem, Shem being the basically pale or white peoples. Uh, And there's very little notice of war between uh, Japheth. In fact, Japheth is not listed as particularly warlike in the Bible record. (coughs) They're mentioned 98 times. The whole Asian conglomeration, China, Japan, Korea, Indonesia, all those nations in the East, all the little ones combined with it, are mentioned in the Bible 98 times. Now, is that a lot? By comparison to what, you might ask. All right, then we go to Ham. Ham represents the black peoples of the earth, and Ham is mentioned 1,353 times. Now that, so far, in this overview, is over 13 times more than Japheth is mentioned. You look at the black peoples today, wherever they might be on the earth, about 11% of the United States, most of Africa, and scattered here and there uh, about the earth, some in mixed peoples, but primarily Africa and a large number in the United States. Now, are they important being mentioned that many more times than JPEG? And if you look at them in terms of today's situation, how important do they appear to be? They're not politically that important on the world scene, are they? Geopolitically, they're almost nothing. They're being raped and pillaged still by Europe and Asia and Africa. And in this country, they have not been prominent since the days of slavery ended. They're becoming somewhat more so, but certainly not huge politically by any means. Now, of those mentions, well, let me me say this. Ham is mentioned in terms of Mitzriam 736 times. Now, the word Egypt in the Bible is a very poor translation of the Hebrew. In fact, it's not really a translation of the Hebrew. Anytime you see Egypt or Egyptian in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is Mitzriam. In the table of nations in Genesis 10, Mitzriam is listed as Hemitic. So, People have moved around, and we think of the nation of Egypt today as a place in northern Africa along the Nile that is prim- primarily Arabic. So we, in our minds, in Western civilization, consider Egyptian or Egypt to be some of the Arabs. That is not how God defines Egypt. He defines what well, we know as Egypt, as Mitzrium, clearly one of the sons of Ham in the t- table of nations. The Philistines are mentioned 293 times. The Philistines were also black, despite Hollywood's movies, because Philistim is listed in the table of nations under Ham. Canaan and Canaanite is mentioned 119 times. Canaan is the land that became the promised land. Abraham was sent to the land of Canaan. When it was time to go into the promised land, Joshua led the people into the land of Canaan across the Jordan River. They went into the heart of black country is where they went. Jebus, the city of Jebus and the Jebusites were inhabited by black people. And Judges 19, verse 10, Judges 19:10, an important reference, says, Jerusalem is Jebus. In other words, it was originally named Jebus after the Jebusites. And when Abram went there, as God told him to go find a city, it was the city of Jebusites in the land of the Canaanites. Hamath, or Hamathite, is mentioned 36 times. Sheba, 32 times. Who would, what did the Queen of Sheba look like in any movies you saw about King Solomon, King Solomon's minds, and all those movies that Hollywood did? She was a very lovely white lady, was she not? Maybe oriental, I think, white. But the Bible says Sheba was black, the land of Sheba. I suspect that the queen of Sheba was a very lovely black lady, if you will. Now, that's what God's Word says, not what Hollywood says or maybe some archaeologist says. Dedan is mentioned 11 times. And then we have the Ites. I won't go through all of them, but the Amorite 14 the Jebusite 14, Heth 14, Sidon 14, and then the Gergesites and the uh, uh, Hivites and all the other ites are mentioned less times, but they're all in the lineage of Ham. Now, if Ham is mentioned 1,353 times and Japheth only 98 times, And Ham is that important in the history of the world and the Bible. Why aren't they more prominent today? You would think they would be. Mentioned 13, 14 times more than Japheth. I refer you to Ezekiel 29.15 where it says, the Nitzriam also known as Egypt, would become the basest of nations because of the slavery that they had perpetrated upon Israel. Now, understand, the the black people in the beginning were powerful people, capable people. In the table of nations, it singles out Nimrod in the line of Ham, Nimrod was a black man as well. Most people in the table of nations are just mentioned by names as a son of so-and-so, but not Nimrod. He is mentioned specifically. And he was the first one after the flood to begin what he intended to be a world-ruling empire. And was evidently quite capable. He founded four big cities, it says, the greatest of which was Babel. And he became a great leader against the eternal. It says hunter, but the terminology there means he was a great hunter or leader against God, not just a slayer of beasts. But he was a very capable man. And he was capable, I'm sure with some of Satan's help, of creating an empire that God himself says would have reached to the heavens had God not confused the languages and run them out of there. Ham was a tribe of people to be feared because of their capabilities and their power. Early on, they took leadership above Shem and above Japheth, right out of the box. And God had to stop that. Now in Ezekiel 29:15, if you read there yet, it does say that Mitzrium would become the basest of nations. So you look at the black people today, and it does appear that God has removed their power, has removed their ability to build and to do, and they are of the three major divisions of the peoples of the earth the least important or effective in terms of geopolitics of the three. So they bear very little uh, power in terms of the end time events. It wasn't that they are a lesser people or were, but God put a punishment on them that has not yet been lifted. Then we come to Shem. Uh, Let me back up just a moment. I mentioned that that Tarshish was mentioned as a trader in particular, but Tubal and Javan are mentioned in the same breath with them more than once. Sheba Sheba brought uh, gifts and did a lot of trading with Solomon. And the ships of Tarshish brought goods of all kinds from Asia to Solomon. And it took three years and a cycle of ships going back and forth in a great worldwide trade that was going on between Asia and Israel during those days. If we see great trade relations between Asia and America today, what are they based in? They're based in history. There's nothing more like given there. Well, Sheba was mentioned as, as a trader as well, but that's of hand. So, Israel was trading with black nations, and they had great goods, as Sheba showed, but so did the Asians. Somebody, I just read an article that said Iraq will be restored as Babylon. Now, what does Iraq produce? Read the list of things in the book of Revelation in 18. Read it about Tyre, and I think it's uh, Isaiah 27, and there's another, I believe in Ezekiel, that may be 29, about Tyre. And all of the goods that are listed there, exotic things, all kinds of things that Iraq simply does not, cannot produce and does not have the natural resources to do. Nothing in the Mesopotamian area has that kind of sources to do that kind of thing. But... Japeth does and is not only as a matter of history, but to this very day, producing all kinds, all manner of goods, and exporting them to the United States as her biggest trading partner. She's becoming a worldwide merchant nonpareil, bigger than us. All right, that's Japeth eclipsed by Ham by 13, 14 times. Now let's consider Shem. Shem and the major peoples of Shem, the sons, the grandsons, and even further down the line than that, in terms of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who also came from Shem. But the the major words used for Shem combined come up to, well, my first uh, edition showed 5126 times. But I had not yet figured in Ishmael, Ammon, Moab, and Esau, and others who are Semitic. And I came up with another 569, essentially, from the Arab world. And then if you count Babylon, and Assyria, which are Semitic as well. Babylon is mentioned 286 times in the Bible. And Assyria, Assyrian or Assyrians, 148 times. So the number of times that Shem and its children are mentioned is well over 6,000. That's quite a, an up from 98 or 1353 with Japheth and Ham. Now, who is the Bible written about? Just by sheer weight of numbers. It's written about Israel. And anywhere you go in the Bible, it's going to talk about Israel and and Judah and Ephraim and Manasseh and those peoples as the main center of attention. There is an isolated chapter here and there showing God's judgment on Esau or Edom or Uh, some other peoples. But primarily, the whole Bible, you you can hardly read it anywhere without encountering Israel in some form. Either physical Israel or spiritual Israel. The Bible is written about Israel. Now we have one other category of people on the earth that are not listed in the table of nations in Genesis 10. We have yellow, we have black, and we have white. And then there's another category of people that has quite a great number, and that's Brown. But they are not listed in the table of nations, nor are they particularly geopolitically powerful or important today. They are essentially the peoples of, that were here before white men came back, of North America and South America, and then an admixture of them in Polynesia, the islands or islandia of the South Pacific, poly meaning many, like polygamous, many wives, Uh, Polynesia, uh, a clot or grouping or many different peoples combined there that produced various shades of brown. They are not mentioned in the Bible except obliquely as mixed breed peoples. And DNA proves that the Browns were not uh, a table of nations people. Only the three were. But the Browns were then mixed breeds from whites and blacks uh, with some Asian mixed in. That's the only way you get brown is when you mix black and white and black and yellow or yellow and white, you get brown. I have a son-in-law who is half Irish and half Chinese. He looks more Mexican, I guess, than anything else uh, because of the mixture of Chinese and Irish. Uh, And that is what you get when you mix the three races that God brought through the flood together. So, that tells you that sometime in history, there were a lot of blacks and whites And Asians in North and South America who left behind a brown people. That's the only way you get brown people. Now that's important when we really understand who Israel is and where the promised land is. We will not go there today. uh, But those people came and bred with each other and then left. We will find that there was a great deal of intermarriage and racial mixing between Ham and Shem. Between Israel and the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Can- you know, all those peoples who were black through Ham. I am sure there was a great deal of intermarriage with Mitzrium over 430 years of the captivity in Mitzriam. There has been a great deal more of it to date. Uh, much mixture with those who were brought here as slaves from Africa. And we have many, many people today in America who are not black or white, but are mixed. Because the slave owners uh, mixed very freely with the black girls, and we have a lot of brown people today as a result, mixed breeds. So there's been much intermarriage between Shem and Ham historically. Historically. And there still is being. There was historically very little mixture between uh, Shem and Japheth. They were not neighbors. They were not close together. Uh, There's a little more now since we have more Asians coming to this country and they're beginning to marry with Semitic peoples. But historically that was not the case. And today it is not the preponderance. It's a small minority. So when we understand where the promised land was and that that's where Abram went among the black people, it was those peoples that they intermarried with and God allowed them to take wives of and concubines of the conquered peoples. And at one point he said, do not do that. And Nehemiah made them separate from those peoples because they were learning paganism from them. So, it's something that God allowed, and there has been a great deal of mixture between Shem and Ham in the past. And there still is in the present, and it's becoming very pronounced. The reason Ham is mentioned so many times in the Bible, in comparison to Japheth, is because they were neighbors with Israel. And because they enslaved Israel, and because Israel enslaved them, and they lived together in the land of Canaan, and were not driven out as God said, and the primary opposition that David faced was the Philistines. And his introduction to them was of a very large black man named Goliath. He was nine and a half feet tall. He makes Shaquille O'Neal look midget, if you will. And that's what he was. You didn't see that in a Hollywood movie, but you see it in the Bible because Philistim was of Ham. And it says in the Psalms three times that Israel was in slavery in the land of Ham. We look at it today and we see the Egyptians and we do see the archaeology of Egypt. And you see a lot of statues of kind of white people or brownish people. That are looked upon as the Egyptians. Not true. They are a mixture of some other people in northern Egypt uh, that is not of Ham. Now, there are some features in Egypt of Ham, and Ham certainly has been there. Uh, the Sphinx itself has uh, very Negroid features. But you don't see a whole lot of that. There's as much evidence of black people in South America as there is in Egypt. But archaeology and Hollywood portray the Philistines, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Amorites as white in their movies because the archaeologists can find no evidence whatsoever of black people ever having inhabited the nation we call Israel today, or that area of the world. It's simply not there. So they assume that the Bible story is incorrect, and that those people of Ham were not really of Ham, and they weren't black. They must have been whitish and brownish. They will not believe the Bible record. Now, the story of archaeology in the land of Israel is essentially correct. There is no, nothing been found of the temple of Solomon. There is nothing been found of black people there. And yet the Bible clearly shows that Abram went to a city of Jebus in the land of Canaan, which was black. Now, does that mean that that wasn't the promised land? That's a question we have addressed and perhaps a question for another day. I will not take it beyond that. We are here today to consider the peoples of the world, the geopolitical confirmation we have today, and what is about to happen and who's going to do it. That's the subject. These other areas certainly do tie in and fit with that, but they're not the main thing we're looking for today. Now, someone on the Internet or someone here mentioned it. I don't know where it came from, but uh, there has been talk around somewhat that there is a, an east wind coming to destroy us. And that that east wind is defined as Asia and more particularly China. And that's part of the justification for saying the Chinese are coming, the Chinese are coming. Now, is that a correct assessment, and does that fit what the Scriptures actually say? So I went through all the Scriptures that talk about an east wind, and I want to address those in some detail. I will not address uh, all the preponderance of them, because most references to an east wind are just that, a hot wind that tends to dry things out. And I'll give you a few examples of that, Uh, as no nations are involved in type in any way, but things like an east wind coming to uh, wither Jonah's gourd uh, and that type of thing. Those are mentioned in several places in Genesis and Exodus and Job uh, as just a hot wind. Ezekiel 17.10 is the parable and the uh, riddle about the church. And it talks about an east wind that came against the church, that dried it out, that destroyed it. Now, in that analogy, which I think has become very clear, speaking of Herbert Armstrong, Joseph Koch and Junior, and then later, God is going to clip the top of an evergreen tree and build a remnant To stand against the beast and the world. That I think is fairly clear when you understand it. In fact, it's abundantly clear. Well, what is the east wind then in Ezekiel? Did we have Chinese destroy the church? Did we have Japanese destroy the church? No. We had an Edomite. We had... Uh, a man from the Ukraine who apparently was an Edomite. His name is, and Stanley Rader has an Edomite name. They are not of Japheth. They are not from the east. They were from Shem. Now, is that borne out in the rest of the scriptures about an east wind? The ones that possibly could apply to nations, not just gourd-eating winds or something of that nature. Notice Psalm 48.7. Psalm forty I'm going to take all of those now in order here that represent nations. It says there that God will break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. Now, Tarshish, as we've seen, was one of the sons of Japheth. Asian. So here we have an east wind used as an instrument of punishment against Asia. I do not know, and perhaps you could with an in-depth study uh, of semantics and history, begin to place names on Tarshish and Tubal and Javan, uh, which almost clearly is Japan as much as Denmark is of Dan's mark in Israel. Uh, But Tarshish is mentioned the most and which has been the most prominent and the biggest nation of Asia, that has been China. So God says, if Tarshish is China, it is certainly one of the major nations of Asia, that he will use an east wind to punish Tarshish. He's not using Tarshish or uh, Japheth to destroy Israel. It's the other way around, not Israel, but someone that could be called the East Wind punishes Parshish. Isaiah twenty-seven, uh, verse six. I'll turn to that one. I'm not turning to all of these and reading them in depth because of time and the amount of material that's here. I can already see I'm not going to get through it today. But Isaiah twenty-seven. beginning in verse 6, "...he shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud, and fill the face of the world with fruit. Has he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? In measure, when it shoots forth, and will debate with it, he stays his rough, rough wind in the day of the east, east wind." By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged, and this is all the fruit to take away his sin when he makes all the stones of the altar and so on. And the defense city shall be desolate, the habitation. Now, let me see here. Oh, this is about Tyre. That's, that's what I was going to say. Uh, a prophecy against Tyre, Isaiah 27. God stays His rough wind in the day of the east wind. Is this a reference possibly to something from Asia? I doubt it because nothing else backs it up. It's somewhat vague here. And it doesn't by any means show a type of an Asian nation. Now, Jeremiah 18 If you put the right spin on it, perhaps Ezekiel 27 could mean that. I might study it some more. But it isn't clearly anything where Asia is whipping up on Tyre. Jeremiah 18 17 I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Uh, I think this is talking about the peoples of Israel. Scattered, scattering them, as with an east wind. Well, the rest of the places, essentially, through Genesis, through Psalms, through Job, an east wind is simply a withering, hot wind. And there is no root reason to say that east wind depicts the peoples of Japheth. In fact, the one where it says the east wind will destroy Tarshish is just the opposite. So, nothing here that clearly shows a type. And the Bible does have to interpret itself. Let's go on and see if that is brought out. Uh, Isaiah 27, 26, same chapter we were in, mentions it again. And this is the one that's the closest to showing that the premise of the East Wind being China could somehow be read into the equation. Verse 26 of Isaiah 27. Now, wait a minute. That can't be it. I wrote something down wrong. 16, I guess it is. Can't read my own writing. It doesn't have 16 either. It's about Tyre. Where was that? Verse what, 8? Yeah, that's the one that we read. Well, uh, oh no, I, I'm sorry, I was looking in the wrong place. Uh, Hosea 12.1 is where I wanted to go next. I, I, I looked up in my note there. Hosea 12, verse 1. There is another one that's more of a maybe we're about to come to than Isaiah 27 was about Tyre. That one's very unclear. Hosea 12, verse 1. Uh, Notice this. See what slant it has. Ephraim feeds on wind and follows after the east wind. Ah, we have Ephraim feeding on wind and following the east wind. What does that mean? Keep reading. He daily increases lies and desolation, and they do make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried into Mitzriam. Doesn't talk about Asia at all, does it? It talks about Ephraim feeding on the wind and following the east wind, and they have a covenant with the Assyrian and a trading agreement with Mitzriam, the blacks. Uh, There are other scriptures... In Jeremiah and so on that call Assyrian our lover or Assyria our lovers. Hosea goes into that quite a bit. How Ephraim is a silly dove goes to Assyria. Jeremiah 50:51 50, talks about uh, how Ephraim goes after her lovers, the Assyrians, uh, young, good-looking men on horses and so on. So we have, historically, and we do today, have an alliance with those who fought us twice in this century, the Germans. Pretty strong alliance there. So the Bible is beginning to define the East Wind not as Asia, but perhaps even Assyria. Now let's go to Hosea 13:15. This is the one I was looking at that's uh, a maybe, Hosea 13:15. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, this is speaking again of Ephraim, the east wind shall come, the wind of the eternal shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. An east wind was a dry, withering heat. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Now, there's nothing there that says that that east wind has to be somebody from the far east. It just says a wind will come up against Ephraim and dry it up and spoil it. Alright, let's go to Habakkuk Habakkuk 1. Habakkuk, these are all very much end time prophecies by the way, as a reminder. Now I say Hosea 13.15 is a maybe if you want to read it in there that way. But let's go to Habakkuk 1, 6, where he says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were Semitic. They were not Japhetic. They were not of the east. They were of the Mesopotamian region. I will raise up the Chaldeans. They were also the Babylonians. Another word for Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses are swift. Great warriors, in other words. Verse 9, they shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. Here, the east wind is equated to the Chaldeans or Babylonians. The direct uh, symbolism that God uses for east wind and nations is of the Chaldeans and Babylonians and of the Assyrians, both who have been very warlike in the past and who will be very warlike in the future. The only way to understand these things is to consider all the scriptures that God has on them, the ones that point out anything specific or in particular. Now, you might want to yourself read into uh, Hosea 13:15 that that east wind must be the Chinese, and some talk radio show host will probably do that, but he is a Bible illiterate if he does. I have become, over the last two or three days, more Bible literate than I was a few days ago, because these are popular teachings now in America, but they do not have roots in the Bible. The Bible says something contrary. Let's go to Isaiah 11. Uh, That's all the references about an east wind, by the way, but let's Consider east as well. So I want to go to Isaiah 11. Now, we will get to it a little later. I'm not going to go there right now. But that section in Isaiah 7 through 11 is very, very uh, vociferous in terms of whom God is talking about uh, in destroying Israel. But Isaiah 11, uh, verse 4 here. Now, this is the millennial chapter we have used in the past. It's not all millennial because much of this is far before the millennium comes. Uh, 11.4, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. The breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Is that the verse I wanted? It must be further down. Yeah, uh, verse 11. He's talking about Christ up to this point and what He is going to ultimately do. But in verse 11 it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people. God is going to begin, when Christ returns, to gather His people again from the end time destruction and captivity that will be brought. They were taken into captivity in, well, they became slaves in Egypt and it became a captivity or Mitzrayim. And then they were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians for 70 years. But the second time, referring to, again, when Christ returns, chapter 11, and he begins to gather his people. Where does he gather them from? He shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from number one, Assyria, and from Mitzriam, and from Pathros, and from Cush; those are black people. From Elam, those are Semitic people, and from Shinar, that's the area where the Babylonian Empire was born, and from Hamath, that's black people in the Table of Nations. And from the coastlands of the sea. Now, if they've been taken captive by the Chinese, why are they in these other places? Primarily, the ones mentioned here are Shemitic and Hamitic. Those are the major areas. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Israel or Judah from the four corners of the earth. So they're going to be scattered around the world, but the primary ones are listed, and that is very specific of where they will be coming from. There was one here that talked to them of the east. I don't see that. Maybe I wrote it down wrong. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, just I was just getting there. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. Philistines were of Ham again, black people. They shall spoil them of the east together. Uh, the envy, uh, let's go back to 13 because it gives you the context. The envy of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. The brothers fighting anymore. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, and they shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon. So if they're going to spoil the peoples of the east along with the Philistines, who will they lay their hand on? Because this is a defining verse. They will lay their hand upon Edom and Moab. Edom was Esau, brother of Jacob, a Semite. And Ammon was a... uh, incestuous son of Lot, Semite, brother or uncle of Abraham. So he calls the people of the east Ammon and Moab here, not China or Japan. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. The peoples of the east then have been defined as Assyrians, as Ammon and Moab, And as, uh, what was the other one I'm looking for here? The Chaldeans or Babylonians. Those people in the Mesopotamian region, not the Far East. And all the scriptures that describe this. Uh, Go to Jeremiah 49. And here we want verse 8. Flee you, uh, let's see, concerning Edom. Thus says the Eternal of Hosts, verse 7. Is wisdom no more in Ottoman or Edom or Esau? Is counsel perished from the prudent? Is their wisdom vanished? Flee you, turn back, dwell, dwell deep, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time that I will visit him. D Dan, let me see, I've, I've forgotten now exactly who Dedan was. I guess I've got that back on this sheet. Uh, that's Ham, Hamitic, Dan. So, Edom and Dedan, but not the Far East. And speaking of these people, let's see... Uh, he uncovers Esau and so on. Was there some reference here to uh, to the East? Well, I may have lost that in my. Oh, the men of the East in here somewhere. It talks about Damascus and Kadar as well. Um, Now, who destroyed Israel? The Ammonites. Oh, these people are being punished, basically, Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 25, for what they've done to Israel. That's the point I wanted to make here. The Ammonites are given to the men of the east for, because of what they did to Israel. So the Ammonites have been against Israel and been an enemy. And they will be punished for what they've done to Israel, not for what China has done to Israel. Ammon, Moab, Edom, the Philistines are all punished for despising Israel through Scripture. Daniel 11.4 talks about the king of the north who destroys the United States. And there in that verse, it says that the king of the north worries about the east and the north. So he comes here to destroy us. But he's worried about the peoples of the east and the north. The peoples of the east and north were not there to do it. The king of the north by then is running things in this country. This is later. But he hears things that bother him about the far east. And we will see that the kings of the east are involved. The Japhetic peoples are involved. Revelation sixteen twelve talks about the kings of the east, the only place that that is mentioned. And that context in Revelation 16 is long after the United States has been destroyed. The kings of the east coming against Israel is simply not mentioned. Now let's take the word Gog and the words Magog. Because these do talk about the peoples of Japheth, Asia, if you will, coming against Israel. But the only places they're mentioned are in Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 39, and Ezekiel, I think it's 32. And that is just prior to the millennium, perhaps. And Revelation 20, verses 7 through 8, mention it again when Gog and Magog come against the beloved city after the thousand years is finished. So Gog and Magog do come after Israel at some point in time, but it's long after the destruction of this nation as we currently know it. Far in the future. Time of unwalled cities and the ones that have no walls and no bars on the gates. That's not the United States today. (coughs) We are a highly defensed bunch of cities. We do have uh, military walls around ourselves in the form of Navy, Air Force, Army, and so on. We are certainly armed to the teeth. But this is where Gog and Magog come against the unwalled villages in the glorious land. And it's all... Way off in the future, none of it is coming today. Uh, Meshach is the son of Japheth as well, but there's nothing about him that says anything about destruction to Israel. Ezekiel 27 talks again about them being our merchants. Now, let's go to the book of Psalms, chapter 83. I hope this much detail is not uh, boring. I I hope that uh, we have enough interest in what is going on in the Scripture to analyze these. Uh, Again, it is unfair and it is intellectually dishonest to take one or two or three Scriptures and formulate our doctrine or our belief upon them. If we are to be fair in any form or fashion, we have to take everything that God says, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, and get everything God says about a subject in order to truly understand it. Because we can run off half-cocked about one or two verses that we either take out of context or read something into and form our doctrines from that. And that is not proper Bible study. That is forming an opinion and finding a way to uh, justify that opinion based on what you would like to believe. We had to go through the same thing on the Passover, didn't we? I could not formulate that doctrine on one or two verses. I had to go through the Bible and study every verse, every passage about the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread to come up with everything that God said about it and make it believable for anyone who had an ear to hear. And you have to do the same thing with prophecy. You can't simply form it on the basis of who you think a leopard or a lion or a dragon is. What does the Bible say? Some people say the dragon is China in end-time prophecy. I beg to differ, but we'll get there. Because the Bible very clearly shows who the dragon is. Psalm 83. Here it talks about an enemy that will come, verse 2, and make a tumult. Verse 3, they've taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted against your hidden ones. So they are coming against Israel and perhaps Even the church at some point, because the king of the north does send a little horn after the church at some time in the future, at the time when the abomination of desolation is set up in the true Jerusalem and the true temple. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. So we have a coalition of people here whose aim and purpose in life, or in this coalition, is to remove the name of Israel from the face of the earth, to destroy every Anglo-Saxon, every Israelite that walks the face of the earth. This shouldn't be boring. This is talking about us. There are people who want to do that to us, or U.S., For they have consulted together with one consent. They've all agreed on this. They are confederate against you, against Israel. So here we have a great confederacy in a book of prophecy, the book of Psalms, which is full of prophecy. Who is in this confederacy or conspiracy to destroy the United States? The tabernacles of Edom, that's Esau, Uh, they can perhaps best be defined today as the Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, Ashkenazi is interesting. Uh, Ashkenaz is listed on the table of nations as Japhetic. And there are peoples who were in the uh, area above Turkey who were called Ashkenazis, or Ashkenazis, if you will. And... uh, they adopted the religion of Judah. They were Khazars, and they are known today as people who are say they are Jews, but are not. And even uh, people, historians, have put that together. So, there may be some intermarriage between Japheth and Ashkenaz, uh, of some peoples in the Middle East, and then those who adopted Judaism, and then said they were Jews, and the people of Rothschild, or Red Badge, and Esau was known as Red, or Red Man, who are Ashkenazi Jews. So Nazi may have had its birth a long, long time ago. Uh, Hitler allowed many Jews who were Ashkenazi Jews, or Edomites, to live in Germany, And he was after primarily the Sephardic Jews are the people of true lineage by blood of Judah. He knew the difference. And we shall see that Edom is very, very much a part of the prophecy. They will laugh at the calamity of Israel. They will be a part of the conspiracy to destroy Israel as we will find in Obadiah. And they are listed here in this confederacy in the book of Psalms first one mentioned. And it does say in uh, Genesis that uh, Isaac told Esau that he would break the yoke of Jacob off his neck. And they hear very close to doing that through the banking and financial world today, destroying our economy on purpose. Federal Reserve Rothschild, I mean. Rockefellers, that whole bunch. I won't go into all that. But Edom is very much alive and well today and dwelling in the fat places of the earth and they still have it very much in mind to destroy Jacob, the brother that they have hated ever since Genesis. Okay, so we have Edom. And it does say in Genesis that Edom is Esau. Then we have the Ishmaelites. Who were the Ishmaelites? They were the twelve sons of Hagar. God made twelve nations of them. They have been defined, and I think correctly, as primarily the nations of Arabia or the Arabs today. There's some mixture back and forth and, and some Persian and so on in Iraq and Iran, but of the nations of what we would call the Arabs, uh, those apparently are the twelve nations of Ishmael. So, so far we have people of Esau and a coalition of Arabs, Ishmaelites, mentioned by God, of Moab, who is Moab. Uh, They were, again, a son of Lot through incest. So they're connected to Israel, though not Israelites, but through Lot's line. They're Semites, certainly, and kinfolk of Abraham, cousins, if you will, of the United States and the rest of Israel today. And the Hagarenes, that word is from Hagar again, and is denoting a different bunch of the Arabs. Gebal. Uh, they do not know for sure who Gebal is in terms of the Bible dictionaries and so on, but it's a question that perhaps they were of Esau. They helped build Solomon's temple. They may have been Edomites. It's not clear. Uh, Then we have Ammon. That was the other son of Lot through incest. So he is cousins of Israel. No one yet so far from Japheth. So Ammon and then Amalek. Amalek is Esau. Amalek was a grandson of Esau. So again, we have Edomites showing up. Then we have the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Now, the Philistines were closely associated, as we've seen, with Israel already, and were neighbors and slavery back and forth and enemies and and, uh, friends and and marriage partners. So the Philistines are hemitic. So there are going to be some black people who are involved in this. And the Philistines are the most mentioned black people in the table of nations. Then we have one more. Asher is joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. Asher is the root word for the Assyrian. So uh, Asher, the table of nations, says, it makes a comment on him came out of the land of Ham, although he is listed as a son of Shem. So he had some kind of doings or dealings with the sons of Ham, though he established Nineveh, it says, which has been the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So what do we have? we got Esau, Arabs, other cousins of Israel, Semitic, uh, some Hamites, and Assyrians. Those are the ones Psalm 83 lists as the primary people who will form a coalition to remove the name of Israel from the face of the earth. That's whom God points out. We'll see if that's borne out by other scriptures. Now let's take the phrase, a language you know not, Jeremiah 5, because it has been uh, suggested that uh, we know German, but we don't know Chinese. How many of you here, if you had a German walk up to you and Zion Park. How many of you here would understand his language and know what he was saying? Pardon? You get a bit of it. Gutenaggen <laughs> or something, you know. Heil. Uh, we got one guy back there that says he'd know some German. Now, if a Chinese walked... Uh, you you probably know a little bit. Of your background. But uh, minimal. Minimal. Um, How many of them understand Chinese? That's about zero. From minimal to zero, there's not a whole lot of difference there. See, in Europe, most people understand to one degree or another, and many of them speak two or three or four languages, primarily English, Italian, German, and French. Uh, So there they know it. But in America, nah, we took a little German, maybe one course in high school and maybe a semester or two in college. And that's about it. And very, learned little, very little about it. So that's a language we do not know. But let's read this in Jeremiah. Uh, verse 15. Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far, O house of Israel, says the Eternal. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language you know not, neither understand what they say. Now, in America, that could be essentially any language on earth, except English, because we just don't bother. We don't know Chinese, we don't know Spanish, we don't know uh, German or French or Swahili. We're just English speakers. And we're even semi-literate at that, for the most part. Barely understand English and can't read it or write it anymore. So any nation you want to name or any language you want to name, if you're just picking a number here because you think it's harder to understand, uh, that is not valid. We need to find out what nation this speaks of. So it's a mighty nation. Now that could be perhaps a lot of different people. Perhaps it could be China, Japan, Russia, it could be uh, Germany, it could be Great Britain for that matter. They still have nukes, whether or not they're powerful. But just take that phrase, and a mighty nation could be one of several, okay? It is not defining it here. Ancient, well, that could be Assyrian. Nineveh was founded right there at the beginning of the nations. It could be Babylonian, Nimrod founded that right at the beginning. It could be of Ham, Uh, Nimrod the black man founded uh, Babel real early. So it could be several different uh, peoples there that are ancient. A nation whose language you know not, or you don't understand it. And that could be a plethora of nations. How hard it is to learn is not the key. It's just one that we don't understand. Now, I don't understand Arabic. I don't understand Yiddish. I don't understand uh, Jordanian. I don't understand Ebonic, sometime even, the language of Ham, or certainly the languages of the nation of Africa. And I don't understand German. I also don't understand Japanese or Chinese or Korean but that doesn't cut any ice. In other words, this says these things, but it gives no Bible definition of which specific nation it's talking about. That's the point I want to make here. You can't use this to zero in on any one nation. It just doesn't say it. It's not there. Let's go to... Psalm 114, from there, Psalm 114. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language. Well, now there's one that the Bible defines as a strange language, the language of Mitzrayim. They had gone, Jacob and 70 souls, into Mitzriam, And there had they had become slavery or ensla- enslaved. They didn't know the Mitzrium, it, uh, Mitzriumite, I guess you'd say, language when they got there. And maybe they learned to speak it over the course of 430 years, I would think. But yet God still says it was a land or a people of strange language. Now that's more defining by far, than Jeremiah 5.15 because it says Israel considered Mitzriam's language as a strange one. Yet they probably, many of them, if not all of them, spoke it. Jeremiah 1. Let's see the plot thicken here a bit. Isaiah 1. And here I want verse 13 to start. Oh, I'm in Isaiah. That won't work. I want Jeremiah. Maybe I said Isaiah. That's where I went anyway. I meant Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, verse 13. And the word of the Eternal came to me the second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. So he sees something boiling, uh, some action here. Then the Eternal said to me, Out of the north, an evil shall break upon all the inhabitants of the land. Out of the north. Not the east, but the north. Uh, For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Eternal, and they shall come, and they shall set everyone his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof, round about, and against all the cities of Judah. So this is a big war, a boiling pot against Jerusalem, Israel, and Judah. And it's going to destroy. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, and worship the works of their own hands. Now where does this... Maybe that's all there was in that particular one. I thought Assyria was mentioned here somewhere. Maybe it's tied in a little later. Uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 18. "And now have you and, and what and now, what have you to do in the way of Egypt or Mireum, to drink the waters of Sihor, or what have you to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river?" So, this prophecy, which begins with a pronouncement of destruction upon Israel and Judah, then turns as kingdoms of the north and begins to talk about Mitzrium and Assyria. Your own wickedness will uh, correct you, and so on. In other words, we're bringing this on ourselves. Verse 36, why do you get about... So much to change your way. You also shall be ashamed of Egypt, as you were ashamed of Assyria. So, the captivity in Mitzriam was a shame to us, and we will also have shame as a result of the Assyrian captivity. Nothing about eastern nations, but north, and it mentions particularly Assyria and Mitzriam. Now, Mitzriam, or as we know it, Egypt, in our traditional thinking, might be, we would think, a part of the king of the south. Because we think of that nation of Egypt today as Arabic and they would be Ishmaelite and king of the south. Maybe so. But God does not define Egypt. Never has, historically, as that nation in north Africa that we know today is Egypt. Mitzriam is elsewhere for the most part. Black peoples that are not there. But we've already seen in Psalm 83 they're going to be allied with the Assyrians and the Edomites and so on in the coalition to destroy every Israelite. If that is a little unclear, we will see it spelled out very clearly in talking about The north, because many, many times God talks about the people who will destroy Israel in the end time as coming from the north. And there are some of the passages which define what God means by the north, and it is not Asia, I will guarantee you. Now, Jeremiah 50. Did Jeremiah know what he was talking about at the beginning of this as compared with the end of the book? Jeremiah 50, verse 17. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria has devoured him. And last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Jeremiah is an end-time prophecy about the United States of America, which is the modern depiction of Babylon, which will fall, and Babylon falls twice. Once as the U.S. leader of the world, and once as the great beast of Revelation and Daniel, uh, because Babel or Babylon confusion has come to represent a worldwide system of Satan. So it's bigger than that original little empire in Shinar and Mesopotamia. It has come to indicate the whole world. And so has Mitzriam. Mitzriam has become to symbolize sin wherever you find it, as is clearly depicted in the Passover scriptures, to come out of Egypt and so on, or Mitzriam. So we have two of these which were smaller empires in the past. who have been blown up to something far greater than that. Mitzriam or sin, is a worldwide type today. And so is Babylon. So you have to understand who the present leaders of Babylon are, and I refer you to the Babylon series because I went through that in as much or more detail than I'm going through this, to show every scripture that had to do with it, and there is no nation that comes even close to all the descriptions of Babylon uh, that we know today. It isn't anything in the Middle East, or the uh, like Iraq or Iran or the Mesopotamian area whatsoever. The hammer of the whole earth, that isn't Iraq. There isn't time to revive the ancient Babylon. God said it would be desolate and it would always be that way. But the resurrection of Babylon as Satan's system now has a new leader. And we're it. We're the ones who hammer on whomever we wish. We're the ones who have made the nations great with our buying power. And on and on and on it goes. But the Assyrian and the Babylonians destroy us. If we're Babylon in the end time, how could Babylon do it? Well, for one thing, we could go back to... uh, Is it? I think it's chapter 51. Let's see, verse 6. Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in our iniquity. The time of the Lord's vengeance. Where is is the church? And this is talking about the church if you go back to the first part of chapter 50. Those who would go to Zion and flee to Zion. uh, but it says somewhere here, we would heal Babylon if we could. I'm not interested in healing anybody, but us, really, at the moment. This is our country. And he talks about his people, Zion, verse 10, dwelling within Babylon and fleeing from it. Same in Isaiah 48, same in Zephaniah, and on and on it goes. But there's one in here, my eye doesn't fall on it, where I was headed. Uh, yes, uh, chapter 50, verse 15. Talks about Babylon and says, Shout against her roundabout. She has given her hand. Her foundations are fallen, her walls are thrown down. For it is the vengeance of the eternal. Take vengeance upon her as she has done, due do to her. As we've gone in and destroyed peoples and nations, uh, God said, Do it to us. Now what does given her hand mean? It means we made a deal. We are Israel. But we're ruled over by a Babylonian system. And we have become and depict the ancient Babylonian empire because we rule over the entire earth. The one superpower has been said how many times. Declining now and about to be destroyed. But we're it. And our leaders have given their hand behind the scenes. So Babylon, our government, is complicit in and very much a part of the complicity or the confederacy and conspiracy to destroy this nation. They are doing it internally in terms of education, in terms of military, in terms of feeding us bread and circuses and keeping us entertained, destroying our intellect and taking our freedoms away hand over fist as we now see. They are part and parcel with the Confederacy to destroy America. And it is going to be our own leadership, brethren, who break our bones. Or what did he say back there? Assyria does one, and Babylon does the other. We are going to be betrayed of our own leadership and people. It's very clear. So Babylon destroys Israel, which has become Babylon. The leader of Babylon. The whole world. But it says nothing about anyone from Asia. Jeremiah 3.18. Let's go back to that section. There's several more there at the beginning of Jeremiah, not just the end. Which lay the background for what we just read, frankly. Chapter 3, verse uh, 18. In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given for an inheritance to your fathers. But I said, how shall I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a goodly heritage of the host of nations? So we're going to come together again and be drawn out of the land of the north. That is repeated quite a few times. Chapter 4, verse 6. Set up the standard toward Zion. Retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. The lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. Now I'm just reviewing some of the scriptures about the north right now. We'll find more that define what that means specifically a little later on. But the direction it's coming from is the north, whatever that means in Bible prophecy. Chapter 6, verse 1. O you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee out of the midst of Jerusalem, blow the trumpet into Koah and set up a sign of fire in Betheserim, for evil appears out of the north in great destruction. 6.22. Thus says the Eternal, Behold, a people comes from the north country, And a great nation shall be raised up from the sides of the earth. So we said a great nation before in Jeremiah 5.15, or a powerful nation. Here it says a great nation, but it's coming from the north. Isaiah 14. We'll begin to draw a consensus here in a little bit. We keep reading these. 14.21. Prepare slaughter for His children, for the iniquity of their fathers, that they do not rise, nor possess the land, nor fill the face of the world with cities. For I will rise up against them, says the Eternal of Hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant of the son and the nephew, and make it uh, destroyed. Verse 31, Howl, O gate! Cry, O city! You, whole Palestina, are dissolved, for there shall come from the north a smoke and none shall be alone in his appointed times. So here again, it comes from the north. Verse twenty-five. I wanted in there. Now maybe that's a different chapter. Somewhere right in there, it talks about the Assyrian in a verse twenty-five. I did this very quickly. Oh, okay, verse twenty-five of chapter fourteen. He says, the time is coming that I will break the Assyrian in my land and upon my mountains, tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. So when he's talking about here in the context, several references to the north, then he throws in the Assyrian. And the Assyrian in history has technically or always been alluded to as the ones coming from the north. The Babylonians... And the Assyrians that's pretty well known in history, so he says the Assyrian is in the land of God, and will be cut off and punished for what he does in destroying Israel. doesn't come down on Japheth, it comes down on the Assyrian. Uh, Chapter 43, verse 6, I'll not turn, but it talks about how the north and the south give them up when Israel comes out of captivity. Uh, chapter 49, verse 12, it talks about the north and the west giving them up. It mentions Sinem, which is apparently, although they're not sure, southern Mitzrium. Not the east, but the north and the west and the north and the south. Alright, let's go to Jeremiah 10. Maybe I don't need to read all of these, but boy, the preponderance of evidence begins to grow the more of it you do read. Chapter 11, verse 22, Behold, the noise of the brute is come, and a great commotion, or like a boiling pot, as we read, out of the north country, to make the cities of Judah desolate in a den of dragons, or s- snakes. Uh, that's 10.22. Look at 13.20. See, this is all the way through here. Lift up your eyes and behold them that come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? It's going to be taken captive from people from the north. Chapter 16, verse 15. Uh, but the Eternal lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands whither He had driven them. says Assyria first, doesn't it? When the people are brought back and then it names other places. This mentions the north and other places that they were sent. And I'll give them the promised land again that I gave to their fathers. We're living in that promised land today because God said we would be. The seed of Abraham would be living there. And we're the seed of Abraham. And since we're living here, then that, by definition of the Bible, is the promised land. And the Assyrian is coming into our land, as Micah 4 or 5 says. Chapter 23, verse 8. Uh, but the eternal lives, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Chapter 25, verse 9. This one's interesting. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Eternal, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof. So here, God says in one breath, that the families of the north include Babylon. Nothing about the east, but Babylon. Begins to define the north somewhat here. Verse 26, same chapter. And all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are upon the face of the earth, and the king of Shishak shall drink after them. It's mentioning all the different peoples here uh, who are being punished. I believe that was the context. Doesn't talk about anybody from the east. Uh, let's see. Maybe that's enough of those. There are a few more. Uh, Ezekiel 26. I don't want to belabor it too much, but I think the the point is being pretty well made by these prophecies. Ezekiel 26 and verse 7. For thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyrus. I think that can easily be uh, proved to be modern New York. I'll bring upon Tyrus, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings from the north. So Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in history were from the north. And we again will come upon ourselves. If you've read enough and seen enough about 911, I think you realize that the U.S. government was very complicit in that, helped organize the whole thing, and 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 did it and used others as pawns in the deal and hid what they did. So if that's modern Tyre, we already, as a Babylonian government, have come upon Tyrus ourselves to begin its destruction. So these ancient prophecies are beginning to come to pass before our very eyes. Uh, Zephaniah 2. This one's a good one. I want to go there. Zephaniah. This is the book just prior to the beginning of the building of the temple in Haggai and Zechariah and the story of the remnant church and the two witnesses. And it is a setup for that. And here we have in Zephaniah 2, talking about Israel here and its destruction, verse thirteen. Uh, you Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. Ethiopians, uh, probably, you know, some black people, so they may be uh, Arabs today. But here's the main one. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria and will make him, or Nineveh, a desolation and dry like a wilderness. So for the destruction of Israel, God is going to punish Assyria. And refers to them and defines them as coming from the north, just like it did Babylon. Okay. Jeremiah 46, 6 through 10. I won't turn there. You can note it and read it later if you want. It talks about Babylon from the north by the Euphrates. That's not anywhere near the far east. Uh, 46, 20, 24 Speaks of the north, and Babylon is there. Uh, chapter 50 and verse 9 of Jeremiah. Uh, let's go back there. We were in Jeremiah, but I want to read this one because it, it talks about a coalition or a confederacy again. And that is important when you tie in Isaiah 7 and 8 with Psalm 83 where we've already been. Chapter 50. Uh, where was I now? Verse 9, verse nine I wanted. For lo, I will raise and cause to to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations. So this is going to be a coalition or a confederacy or a conspiracy of great nations from the north country. And they shall set themselves in array against her. From there they will be taken. And Chaldea shall be a spoil, verse 10. Verse 41 is saying essentially the same thing. And then we saw in verses 17 and 18 that the Assyrian is involved as well. Uh, Zechariah 2, 6. <coughs> now here we have the story of the two witnesses at the end. The remnant church. whole story is about that in Zechariah 1 through 6. And here we have... The horns which scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem in chapter 1, verse 19. I want to go down to chapter 2, where it tells us that we will be building towns without walls and have men and cattle there in, in verse 4. Uh, Verse 6, Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, says the Eternal, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, says the Eternal. Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Zion is the church, Hebrews twelve twenty-two through 23, spiritual Israel at the end. And it says we're dwelling in Babylon. The church was raised up in this country. And the preponderance, the great vast majority, 90% of the church has been in America, with less in uh, Canada and Great Britain and so on down the line, but primarily here. The church, spiritual Israel, Zion, has dwelt in and been part of Babylon. So where you find the church today is where Babylon is because we're told to flee out of Babylon. Get away from it. And yet Micah tells us, go to the wilderness even in Babylon. So we were raised in it and have been captivity, in captivity up for the 70 years of the end-time church. And we were told to go to the wilderness even in Babylon, but become apart from Babylon. So if this is where we are and we have to flee from where we've been, then this is also not only the promised land, but it has become Babylon. Didn't God even tell Israel in Ezekiel 16... You don't look like Israelites to me anymore. You look like Amorites and Hittites. Like the black peoples that you've lived around in history. I don't recognize you as my people Israel. You've forgotten my commands. You've forgotten my rules. You're living like the pagans and the Gentiles around you. We are, this America, the great whore of Ezekiel 16 and Revelation 18. That cannot fit the the Catholic Church, and it does not fit Islamic uh, people. It fits us to the T. Wow, it's after. I'm ten minutes late. I got through three of twelve pages. But I think we are beginning to see a preponderance of Scriptures here that are going to give us some direction in where this is headed. And I've only really, so far, touched the surface. There is a great deal more, and uh, God willing, we'll get to that next week. You know, I don't want us to hear Herbert Armstrong and to hear Americans worry about Russia, and now Americans worry about China, and Americans worry about this and dilly-dally about that. I want us to see what God says... And examine not one or two verses that you might read each some way if you wanted. But what does God say in Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture? By His definition, what we're talking about. No, it might not fit some radio host. It might not fit our opinion. But what's your opinion and mine worth? About nothing. That's about how much. God's opinion is the only one that counts. I just read a, an article about Islam and about how they're going to be the great ones to show up. It is just absolutely full of holes and does not prove a thing, but we'll get to that later on.